Welcome back, Shavua Tov, for another week of learning. Our learning is dedicated to Ilanish Hasuf Babadiyah Pavalevi, Lucy Maya, Rina D, Rufu Shleim of Tila Batia, Bachaya Tova, Brahvi Alla Rachel Gita, Yudit Haim and Aviv of Kachaya, Shaman Chaya Sara, Shimon of Elka, Barak Tzvib and Esther Mindel, who needs our Tfilot and Shadokim for all those in need. Okay, so we start Parak And when we finished Parak Zayin, the sense was that the Jewish people were in a good place. The Jewish people seemingly had defeated um, the Midianite army. Specifically, we're told that O'Ravens, who are the um, the generals of the army of Midian, had been defeated. They had been killed. And so our assumption is that that is the end of the war. But it's not actually the case. In fact, there was enough of the army left that was retreating. We're going to see that throughout our Perek. And Gidon's concern is that I want to put an end to Midian. Midian should never, ever put us through what we, were, what we were put through. We should never have to fear this marauding army is going to come to our land and pillage and take everything we have. And so what happens? They want to trap the remnant of the army. So before they even have a chance to do that, Ephraim is going to complain. Now, why Ephraim? So to understand this, we have to understand Ephraim's role in Tanakh. If Yehuda represents the powerhouse, if Yehuda represents royalty for not only the north, the southern kingdom, but also he represents royalty from, shape, from the family of Leah, then it is Ephraim who represents royalty and strength. From which family? From the family of Rachel. The two of them counterbalance each other. It's not shocking that in the Nevi'im we often refer to it as Ephraim and Yehuda. It's not really Ephraim and Yehuda. It is the north and the south. But Yehuda is representative of one faction of the Jewish people and Ephraim of the other. So if Ephraim views themselves in this way, then their, their argument in Pasuk Aleph, is going to be all the more cogent. Why did, what did you do to us? Why didn't you call us when you went to battle with Midian? And they fight with a lot of strength, with a lot of power, with a lot of vigor. They're angry. Now, if you've ever dealt with an angry person, there are two ways to deal with it. One way is you fight back. And sometimes you have to do that. But I find that more often than not, when you fight back, the fight or flight mode from the other person kicks in and they then fight. And it only escalates and escalates and escalates. Sometimes the best way to diffuse the situation is by taking a calm approach. Someone called me the other day to complain about something. And my response back to them was, you're right. And I want to explain to you why I did what I did. But I want you to know that I should have done what you said first. They were so taken aback that they, there was no fight left in them. hope I haven't given away my, my secret. But that really is a, an amazing trick. It's an amazing method to dealing with antagonism. So what does he say? 
They don't answer Zach Masiti Atakachem. What 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 do you mean? Atakachem. So listen to what Rashi says. Machashu Mashasiti Bitchilati Kamashasiti Matabaso. You think that what I did at the beginning, I mean I was the start, that you were the finish. You think that what I did was great? No, the opposite. What Masiti Atakachem, what you did was so much more important. Halotov Olot Ephraim He says the 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 worst Ololot are the poorest quality grapes. Was the poorest quality grapes in Ephraim are better than the choice harvest in my family Abiyazer. What he says to them is, I need you to understand that you guys, what your contribution is. And what you represent, even the lowliest of Ephraim, out 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 of ranks, it's my family. And you're the ones that conquered the generals of the Ravid Zaid. What could we have done? And when he says this, what happens is everybody calms down. Yeah. So the what 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 he's what he does is he diffuses this situation. Abarbanel does interestingly say, You thought that I was doing this. Why? Because I wanted all the glory. I wanted people to say, look at Gido, look at Menashe, look at Aviezer. No, it's not really true. You know what? After after what you did. Everybody's going to look and say, Masha Siti, Ata Enohu. What I did was nothing. What I did was insig- insignificant. That's, that's what he wants. He wants Ephraim to know that you guys really are the Fashion. You guys are the ones that matter. As Rafta Hadava. When he says this, it just sucks the air out of them. It takes the fight out of them. There's no r- longer a reason for them to challenge Gidol. And so, amazingly, Pasuk Ale, the first couple Sukkim end diffusing what could have been a super tense situation. I think what he does is He's explaining to them, and I love the picture. He's saying to them, I, if you have this superiority complex, let me just feed it. Let me make you guys the heroes. You know what happens? Everybody calms down. So let me share with you the, um, the Abarbanel, a, a nice piece. You called us in the end. By the time you called us, there was nothing left to do. We, your calling us said that you didn't think that we mattered. We couldn't do the heavy lifting. But in the end, the chasing, when you're talking about chasing, a confused army, yeah, we're good enough for that. He says, 
Because you're embarrassed of us. The great Ephraim were only good for this. They fight with a lot, a lot of strength. But what he does is he says, what do you mean? You think that's what I want? No, 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 no. You guys did the greatest. You guys did the most important part. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. The Jewish people are eternally grateful. So the Choma Tanakh takes it one step further. He says, This is the reason why you didn't call us even worse, because you hate us. We shift that call in Hashem It's not true. If I called you, I wouldn't have given you the status that you got by calling in the end the way you did. So he says, Kiddush, it, it is a true Hashkacha, and you guys get all the credit for that. So the greatness of Gido is that, as Benjamin Franklin said, Remember, not only to say the right thing in the right place, but far more difficult still is to leave unsaid the wrong thing at the tempting moment. So you know what he could have said? He could have said a chutzpah. You knew what Midian was doing to us for all these years. And nobody, nobody decided to step forward and say, you know what, we're mighty Ephraim now. We're going to help you out. But after the fact, you play Monday, mor- Monday morning quarterback and you say to us, why weren't we called? That's a chutzpah. Really, legitimately a chutzpah. But says Benjamin Franklin, sometimes the greatest thing is not what you say or the right thing, but but not saying the wrong thing at what could be the perfect moment. Passing down. Gidon now is able to go to the Jordan. And they're running. Okay, they're coming down. They're coming down. They did their area through Menasha, and they come right around there, right around there, in between the two words Menasha. They come down, and what happens? They are ayefim. They are exhausted. They're still chasing. By Yomerlan chase Sukkot. They save the people of Sukkot. Tnunaki grot lechem laama sheberaglai. There are three hundred of us. We have no food left. Give us some food. Kayefim because we're exhausted. And we're chasing after Zevach and Talmuna, who were the kings of Midian. So what's going on here? The Malvim has a beautiful idea. The Malvim says, It said to the people of Sukkot, in case you're wondering where Sukkot is, you'll see that there are four blue circles on the right side of the Jordan River, right by Machanaim is Sukkot. That's the first place they go. So says the Abar Benel, what happened? Says the truth is the people of Sukkot were chayiv to give them bread for two reasons. When someone poor, starving, exhausted comes to your door and says, "No, feed me," it's a mitzvah to feed them. And number two, but also because they're the army. And they're chasing the the enemy. The the sarim, that's who they talk to, right? So they say to them, "We're we're hungry." 
feed us. Because they were starving, first he comes to the Yam. People, people of the city, you have to feed us because we are what? We're, we're poor, starving people. So he goes to the, the, the Anashim and says, take care of us. He says, and you know why, we're, we're, why we need this? Why you should give us? We're poor and we're shulchei mitzvah. It's clear that the nation didn't want to give. So then they turn to the Sarim and say, okay, then you're, you're obligated to feed us. You want us to give to you because you're the army? What did you do for us lately? You didn't do anything. You didn't win yet. You didn't beat the enemy. The Malbim throws in such a beautiful idea, but then at the end, the Malbim concludes by telling us, listen, I want you to know something. This was not something that they necessarily didn't want to do. They were afraid. Remember, Midian's traveling path was up here and back down there. Midian is living in their midst right next to them. They say, you know what's going to happen? Yeah, right now, Midian looks like it's going to lose. But what if they win? What if they come back? They'll know that we helped. The Sarim say, we can't take that chance. So, so he doesn't know what to do. Bayom Gedon, Gedon says, it's fine. But when I win, when I conquer Zevach and Salmuna, we are going to thrash, thrash your backs with the thorns and the thistles of the desert. He goes down. Interesting that it says Vayal, maybe they're mountains. But they go down to where? To Penuel by Daverlem Kazot. They say the same thing. They say, We're hungry. Take care of us. By Anu to Anche Penuel Kashar, Anu Anche Sukot. So, you know what happens? People of Penuel say, Yeah. Ditto. Whether they knew what Anche Sukot said or not, they answer the same way. Uh, we don't know you anything. So they say, fine. Gidon says, all right, we're going to win. That's not the question. But when we win, we're going to come back here. At totes, we're going to smash. We're going to destroy this Migdal, your tower. Where is Zevach and Salmuna? They are in Karkor, all the way there. There are 15,000 people there. The, the 15,000 remaining soldiers are encamped in Karkor. And there are a hundred, and this is with 120,000 casualties that have died by their own sword. It is interesting. We're not going to really discuss this. But for those that are familiar with Malachim, the story might sound a little bit similar. The Assyrian king is 
prepared to destroy the southern kingdom of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is laid siege by Sancheirev. And everybody expects it to fall. And you have to remember that Sancheirev had already destroyed and exiled the northern kingdom. And in a similar moment, there's confusion. And also, an insane amount of people die by their own sword. But Michael Hatton does discuss the echoes of the story, but we will not discuss it in depth, just leaving it as a piece to ponder. So he goes through the area over here by Ked, by Novach in Yagba. Now, the way of the tent dwellers, the Mepharshim tell us that it's, it seems to be, he, he goes very, very quietly. It's another surprise attack. That is Tanakh so far in Yeshua and Shoftim. That is probably the best way to win. And he defeats them. And the Machna was Betach. Abar Benel says it was night again. Why? That's the Betach. Nobody expected another attack. And yet, boom, it comes with such stealth, with such shock, and they win. Zevach and Salmuna run away. And they conquer, they capture the kings, the two kings, Zevach and Salmuna, and the entire Machene Hecherid. They all, they shake, they quake. Says Mitzvah's David, Everybody was terrified. This is, you're talking to Midian. They've gone from 135,000 soldiers. They lost over 120, I'm sure, at this point in time. Their kings have been conquered. Their generals have been conquered. He takes the fight out of Midian. And what happens? Gedon ben Yoash comes back from war. And how does he go? I thought at first that this was the name of a place. But it's not true. It's, it's a time of day. He comes back either early in the morning when the sun was high. Um, in fact, I, I have a note here. Not sure who this is from, but the sun was high. First chance to be out in the open with no fear. Median has been captured, has been conquered, has been defeated, has been destroyed. There is no reason to be nervous. Remember the picture of Gidon initially is what? He's dash bagat. He's threshing, he's winnowing his wheat in the gat, in a quiet, private place. It's, in, it's counterintuitive to what people are normally used to. And now... Finally, he's able to go out in the sunlight. But maybe just the answer is that it's morning. It's morning. He comes out in victory. He captures a nar, a young boy, for the people of Sukkot, and he asks him. He writes the 77 names um, of the people. Says the Radak, why does he write them down? So he won't forget it. But it's interesting. Who's doing the writing? So according to the Radak, it seems that maybe it's Yedon himself. 
He's got his pad of paper, his clipboard. He's saying, okay, this guy, this guy, these are the names. 77 names. But I actually think that perhaps there's a different way to read this. I had a camper that got in trouble. It's like a pretty significant thing that he did wrong. And I'm sitting down with him. And he says, Rabbi, I didn't do anything. I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm getting a report that it was like totally you that did this. So he says to me, Rabbi, I, I swear I didn't do it. It's a good kid. And he's swearing. I'm like, okay, well, then somebody else must have done it. I need you to tell me who did it. He goes, I can't, I can't do it. Mike, you're about to take a pretty big fall for something your friend did. Someone did something that was pretty significant. And he says to me, almost a little bit nervous, a little bit shaking. It's not going to get back that I was the one who told you. And I'm like, I'm pretty good at this. I've done this a few times. I think I could do that. He goes, fine. He sees I have my pad of paper, flipboard. And he says, can I just write it down? I'm like, I don't care. Write it down. Tell me. But for this kid, writing it down was much easier. To say that so-and-so did it, ah, can't do it. But to write it, I don't feel the same way. I thought perhaps that's actually what's going on here. Kidon takes this nar, and I'm always fascinated when there's a nar, we don't know who it is. Really, I don't, it does not seem like any of the Mepharshim provide us with a context of who this nar is. This nar is captured, and he writes the 77 names down. He says, look, I have Zevach and Salmuna. And you cursed me and you mocked me and said, where, where is Zevach and Salmuna? You're telling me that you deserve food? Why? What have you done? What have you done to prove your merit? Says Gedot, I got them. Look. You didn't want to give us bread. He takes the elders of the city. He takes the thorns of the desert. And uh, they got to know the uh, the people of Sukkot. Um, so Radak says, what does it mean by Yodash? By, by hitting them with it, he made it clear what they did wrong. Okay? That is um, what we got so far. Um, okay. So let's take a look at what happens next. And then the tower of Penuel, he destroys and he kills the people of the city. So it is an interesting question why it is that he, he kills the people of the city um, and the others, he um, the others he just hits them with the thorns. Um, I'm not sure. But the Redax is the following. She says, maybe what happened was he didn't want to kill them. He just wanted to destroy the Migdal. But they turned to him and said, you're not destroying this. We're not going to go quietly, as they say. So he says, fine, you don't want to go quietly. You don't have to go quietly. So what does he do? Boom. 
He attacks, then they go. And then they fight, and then they die. So, now he's got to deal with the people of, yes, they deal with Zevach and Samuna. He dealt with Sukkot, Ruat Zevach and Samuna. Deals with Penuel, brings Zevach and Samuna. But now he has Zevach and Samuna, he's trying to keep them. Vayomer Zevach and Samuna, Eifon Hashem Asherachim, Tavor. He says to them, where are the people that you killed in Tavor? Tavor, the high mountain where all this started. He said, Who are, where are the people that you killed in Tavor? And this is what they say. They look just like you. The people that were in Tavor look just like you. These psukim are very strange. We don't know anything about Har Tavor. We're introduced to Har Tavor. We don't know anything about these people. We're introduced to these people. It will look like Yomar, He says, These are my brothers. He says, I swear by God, if not for the fact that you harmed them, if not for the fact that you killed them, I would have spared you. What's going on here? What in the world are we talking about? The Barbanel says that there was a a chok. There was an unwritten rule back then. You didn't kill the kings. You don't touch the king. Maybe it's a rule that the kings made to protect themselves. Kings are always fighting kings. Soldiers are pawns. I'm willing to lose a pawn. I'm going to sacrifice a lot of pawns. And maybe even a rook, a knight, or a bishop. The king, you lose the king, you lose the war, says the Abar Vanel. They didn't want to. Maybe the kings all created a, a code of ethics together. You don't kill the king. That's one possibility. Rabbi Hatton, though, oh, and so therefore, just to finish the thought of the Barbanel, he says, the reason why I'm killing the king is I just was. You killed my family. You killed my family. You have to prepare for that. I can't allow for, even if there's a hope not to harm the king. Rabbi Hatton suggests, where are these people coming from? What is his story? So the people of Minyan were smart. They say, we're about to go to war. We might lose. We don't know. But if we're going to lose, we want to make sure that when we lose, we have hostages. It's going to to ensure our safe passage to the land of Israel. That'll be our shield to get out of it. So you know what happens? When they realize that the war is lost, these hostages are actually dead weight. How are we going to escape? How are we going to get away with all these people. So he says they're dead weight. Let's just make them dead instead of kill them. Perhaps another possibility is that he says, listen, you got, you kings had no Rahmanas. You killed my family. If you have no Rahmanas, then your only defense would be, please have mercy. And he says, you didn't have mercy in my family. I won't have mercy on you. That, says of a hat, is the purpose of this story. Rev. Remmer asks a great question. He says, why is it? We have like multiple pieces in the story. 
But why is it that with Ephraim, he exhibits patience, sensational leadership, and by Sukkot and Pnuel not? He says the following. The end starts as a battle, but it ends with happiness. It's not only uh, it's not only that they didn't provide food. So degrading. It sucks. It sucks the spirit of these fighters. These 300 men basically have said, we are going to take the place of 30,000 soldiers and we're going to do all, 32,000 soldiers, and we're going to do all this battle. And someone says to them, you guys, what do you do so far? Nothing. It takes all of their passion, all their sense of self-worth, and throws it out. That through what they said, it's going to cause more fear. He continued fighting despite the fact that he was exhausted. He couldn't be mocha. You know what his, his superpower is? You know what he has that he's great at? He could understand the difference between Bikoret Bonet and Bikoret Oreset. Constructive criticism and destructive criticism. He sees that Ephraim is saying, listen, legitimately, why didn't you include us? We wanted to be there. So he says, fine. That I accept. That I'll listen to. But the other way, and it's coming from the people's quote in Penuel, he sees that there's no mercy. There's no constructive criticism. They're just giving him a hard time. That, he says, he won't be able to do. He won't be able to deal with. Pasachaf. I know, I, I, I flipped the screen a little bit early, so... You have something on the screen that might be a little bit hard to, 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 to it might be a little distracting. I apologize. So, he says his oldest son, go kill these, these kings. He's still a young boy. He does not have the strength to, to do this. Kliakbar says, in deference to the elders, he didn't want to do it. Alternatively, perhaps he's not suited for leadership. Says, why don't you come? You, Gidon, you kill us. You're a strong man. So he kills them and then he takes the Shaharonim that were on the necks of the camel. What is this Shaharonim? Says, that there is a, they had this ornament on the camel called Sharonim. Sharonim comes from the, the word um, in Targum, 
of moon, which is Sihara, Sahara. They had these moon-shaped crescents that were on the necks of the camel. What does he do? He takes them. It's interesting. The, the meaning of Sahara, it's a Muslim girl name, in case you're wondering, popularity rank was of Sahara is 1694. These are 1,693 more popular names than that. Sahara means the moon, desert, or wilderness. So what's interesting is that the, the camels go through the desert. I thought perhaps the reason why they have moons on them is that probably the time, even though it's more dangerous, there's a good chance that they preferred traveling at night when the desert was cooler. And maybe these Sharonim were sort of um, either images or, or idols or amulets or something asking the god of the moon to protect them at night from the elements, to protect them from animals, to protect them from robbers. Um, and so they take that. So they say, listen, Gidon, you should be our ruler. You, your son, your grandson, you should have it. I won't rule. My son won't rule. God will rule over us. God will rule over us. That is what he says. Interesting. Uses the word Mishal. It's King Ish. It doesn't use the word Meloch. And he similarly doesn't say Hashem Yimloch Bashem. But there is this idea, it's the first time someone is offered position of king. I remember learning when I was in elementary school that George Washington was offered the same position. After the defeat of the British, the, the colonists come and say, be our king. Makes perfect sense. From the British model, they couldn't imagine anything other than a king. But George Washington says, no, we're trying to be something different. The Jewish people say to Gidon, be a king. That's what they see. Zevach and Samuna, all these other kings. We've met other kings. We saw by, um, by uh, Ehud Mengeira, kills the king. That's what happens. We see the king. We see by Sisra. He's a general, but there's a king. We see the kings. That's what they want. But his answer is, Hashem Yimshol Bachem. Gidon addresses the elephant in the room, which is Baal worship. He says, having a king might protect them physically. It might even unite them. But a king, could you imagine what a king could do in terms of idol worship? And I thought, Ahav. Ahav is the first one that introduces institutional idolatry into the land of Israel. Kings potentially bring so much to the table, but they also have the ability to justify cruelty, to justify idol worship, says Gidon, Hashem Yimshol Bachem. Can't God just be your king? Why can't that be enough? So Vayomer Aleihem, Gidon says him, Shalom Yikem Sheila. You know, I'm going to ask you a question. Utnuli Ish Nezem Shlomo. I want everybody to give me their golden nose rings. 
Because you, you got these nose rings from the Ishmaelim. Mom says, what in the world is going on? The story, this whole parrot is these like weird stories that were introduced to that like come out of nowhere. He's saying them, listen, guys, I won the war. You want to be the king. I don't want to be the king, but it would be really nice if you guys can give me all of your nose rings that you collected in war. Malvin says, he's saying, I don't want to be your king. And I don't take bribes. Normally, as the leader, I'd be entitled to 50% of the shalal, the loot of war. And I'm just asking for these nizamim. That's what happens. So, Vayomer Natomi 10, chorus. They put a, a sheet on the ground. And they throw on there each one their nose ring. 1,700 gold pieces. Not counting the, um, the, the moon-shaped ornaments on the Camels, the nitifot, which is a tachshit that um, goes, it, it, it leans and covers over the heart. The clothing of our gaman and not counting the uh, the chains that were on the necks of the camels. Kiron takes all this metal. What does he do? He has to um, melt it. He turns it into an ephod. Ephod. Some sort of garment. He puts it in his city in Ofra. And all the people start worshiping. His family worships it. They say, wow. So now this seems to be a very interesting, uh, interesting question. What exactly is going on here? What are we supposed to make of it? Hatton points out. They collected this jewelry, they put it on a simla, and then they 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 fashion it out of gold through heat into something different. Says, doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like He collects their nezim, nezim, their jewelry, puts it in a place. There isn't an opinion that a cheret, by cheret, is that he puts it in this like collection bin bag something, and then he puts it in the fire and the ego comes out. And it's going to be a mokesh. But, they are humbled. Midian is humbled in front of the Jewish people. 40 years of quiet. And Yuval goes home. He has 70 sons from many wives. Now, I, I don't know the answer, but when did this come? Did this happen before? Did he always have such a big family? Or was it all of a sudden? What happens? People are like, oh, wow, this kiddo guy is like the real deal. And so what happens? Perhaps people are interested in him. At this point in time, and then he has a Pilegesh in Shechem. She also gives birth to a son, and he makes his name Avimelech. Not Gidon gives him the name, not his mom gives him the name. 
gives himself the name Avimelech. He has 70 brothers. Pretty amazing. 70 brothers. And he is the son of a Pelagish, and yet he's the one that gives himself the name Avimelech. It's important to know all of this because that is going to be the, the, the thrust and the crux of Perektet. He dies at an old age. He's buried in the cavern of Yoash's father, Nofra Aviazri. If you look, this is a, it looks like a coin that is minted with an Avimelech, being the, uh, the king we're talking about. Pasuk Lamed Gimel. And they go back to worshiping Baal. And they forgot God. And they do not do chesed, they do not do kindness, they do not do right by Gidon. What a shame. What a shame. We are introduced to Gidon, and Gidon has such high expectations. And you know what? Gidon overcomes his anxiety. Gidon overcomes everything that we, we saw. We thought Gidon could be the king. We wanted him. Wouldn't that have been amazing? And yet in the end, Gidon suffers the fate of being the one that's going to introduce idolatry again into the Jewish people through his aphod. And subsequently, the Jewish people return exactly as, as they were beforehand. And not only that, but we're going to see the inner strife and inner turmoil that is going to be the short reign of Avimelech, the non-Shofate, that's ultimately going to lead into the times of Yiftach, which are even more unclear and even more uncertain. Thank you again for joining us. Have a great week and keep walking in the ways of the prophet.